Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today we continue our conversation with Jerry Harrington about Harold Hughes. Um, Hughes served as Iowa's governor in the 1960s, uh, right before Robert Ray. That may be a name that's more familiar to you. Uh, then Hughes served as U.S. Senator uh, from the late 60s into the mid-70s. Uh, we've been discussing what made him exceptional transformational in many ways uh, during what are referred to as the long 60s, this tumultuous period of change uh, during the 60s and early 70s. Jerry Harrington uh, is author of the biography of Harold Hughes, Thunder from the Prairie. Jerry, welcome back to our studio. Good day. Well, to recap, for those who weren't in on the first part of this conversation, and you can get the podcast of uh, River to River if you'd like to listen to it. But just to catch us up to speed, in our first conversation, you described how uh, Harold Hughes' impoverished upbringing, how his parents uh, came to settle in Ida Grove, Iowa, his high school years, uh, with uh, where he and his brother were nicknamed two pachyderms <laughs> because of their sizes, uh, about meeting his future wife, Eva, the tragic death of that brother, Jesse, uh, uh, right at the outbreak of World War II. And then very importantly, the theme through his life and carried into his public policy, his battles with alcoholism. Also, his combat service in Italy and Sicily in World War II that left him with what we would call today PTSD. Um, also, his work as a trucker, how he organized independent truckers, sort of his gateway to uh, becoming a public servant. Uh, and how... Uh, his political, um, his inspirational, his rhetorical gifts were noticed by then-Iowa Governor Loveless, how uh, Harold Hughes ditched the Republican Party. He was elected governor first in 1962, um, using what you described as many ways as some of the progressive energy uh, that John F. Kennedy used when he was elected in 1960. Um, he ran in the 62 election, uh, changing Iowa's liquor law, uh, the so-called liquor-by-the-drink laws, uh, working to repeal Iowa's death penalty, um, also that outreach to black Iowans in the middle of the 60s with the civil rights movement, and his close relationship with uh, President Johnson, who called him his favorite governor. You can find that podcast of our first conversation by searching for uh, River to River podcast with your favorite browser. You write that in many ways the political life of Harold Hughes is a study in the microcosm of the long 60s, uh, a prism through which to see this important period in American history. For those who don't know, what is what are the, the long 60s? What does that term mean? Well, historians have generally uh, defined it as the period that began with the modern civil rights movement, uh, beginning in the late 1950s, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, as an example, and continuing on throughout the tumultuous 60s on into the 70s and ending with Watergate in 1974 with the resignation of Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the mid and late 60s and how that, that tracked through his political career, I wanted to make sure we didn't miss some important points of Harold Hughes as a governor. We said again and again, very transformational. Um, let's have you just sort of list some of the transformations that he made in Iowa. For instance, 
Uh, we have him and the legislature at the, that time to thank for the, the creation of Iowa's community college system. Many things we live with today. The uh, community college system program was passed by the 1965 legislature, and Harold Hughes was a strong supporter of those colleges. Uh, there was, you mentioned the abolition of the death penalty. That happened in 65. Uh, the, also, the 1965 Civil Rights Act in Iowa was passed. Uh, we had uh, educational TV and radio being initiated during that time. And uh, there were, in the 1965 legislature, there were nine constitutional amendments passed, many of which came into fruition in the Constitution, including annual sessions of the legislature. So these were, uh, and to cap that off, there was a a series of studies initiated in 65 in the, uh, to evaluate the social welfare programs in Iowa as well as the tax systems, which saw fruition in the 1967 legislature. So these were quite significant reforms in Iowa government. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's focus for a few minutes on Vietnam. Of course, Vietnam, a major theme in the 60s into the 70s. It was in October 1962, you point out in your book, that the first Iowans died in Vietnam. This is also a time when Vietnam was not the the center of a national attention that it became later in the 60s. Harold Hughes initially backed the war uh, and even took a trip with other governors in 1965 to Vietnam, sponsored by the White House. Talk a little bit about his views, his initial views on that conflict and how those attitudes changed. Well, I think like many Americans, he was he was supportive of the efforts in Vietnam. Uh, I have an example in the book where I talked with former Senator Tom Harkin, who was a young man, talked with Hughes, and he found he was a, behind closed doors. He was a very strong supporter and was very critical of the anti-war movement. This was early on in his governorship. He took a trip to Vietnam in 1965 with a number of other governors. And uh, according to his daughter, Phyllis, whom I talked with, uh, while he got the, the overall view of the war uh, was briefed by those in charge of the war, including General Westmoreland, uh, he began to see that what we were saying about Vietnam, those in charge, and what was really going on on the ground uh, was not the same thing. And he started to have doubts with that visit, uh, even though publicly he supported the war and he supported his president, Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. And, and to demonstrate that point, I, I noted a quote from your book from a 1966 speech he gave in Des Moines. Let me quote uh, Harold Hughes. If anyone thinks the communists are any less determined to rule the world and destroy our free institutions than the Nazis, then let me only hope that he will enjoy the ventilation from holes in his head. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The, he, was, he felt uh, that he should support the war publicly, even though he started to entertain some doubts. Yeah. Mid-60s, uh, remind us, Iowans, for the most part, still behind the war? Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So we talked in our last conversation about his relationship with uh, Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson, um, of course, a um, ramped up the Vietnam War uh, into the late 60s, a large part of why he didn't seek re-election, I think we can safely say. Um, Talk about how Harold Hughes more soured on Vietnam, and and more specifically, how his relationship with LBJ soured at the same time. Well, I... 
like most Americans, and this is this is Hughes explaining this years later, he began to pick up criticisms of the war uh, from individuals like Joe Rosenfield, his good friend who was the head of the Yonkers department store chains, um, who was very influential in starting to change his, his attitude toward Vietnam. Um, as, as time moved on, he began to be more critical, specifically of the bombing in, in Vietnam. And by, I would say, around 1967, when he declared his candidacy, candidacy for the presidency or uh, for the Senate, um, he was pretty much a critic of what we were doing in Vietnam. Yeah. There's an interesting story you tell in the book, uh, a widely reported meeting with uh, Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, in December of 1966. Tell that story. Well, a little bit of background. Uh, Hughes was chairman of the Democratic Governors Association, and they had a meeting uh, after the 66 elections, and these governors uh, were quite critical of, of Lyndon Johnson and how the war was being conducted and other aspects of the Great Society program. Um Hughes left this meeting and met reporters, and Hughes being Hughes, he was honest. We were very critical of LBJ, and LBJ was quite critical of Hughes the next day when he heard the news coverage of this. So he invited Hughes to the LBJ ranch in Texas, along with a few other governors. And according to some people I talked with, including a secret, well, uh, who talked to a Secret Service uh, agent from, from Iowa, the two were yelling at one another. And uh, it was not a pleasant uh, conversation. In fact, it was a confrontation and two very strong individuals going to each other. And um, after that meeting, LBJ took him into another room and, and pointed and pushed his finger at his chest and saying, you better shape up, guy, or, or uh, something bad is going to happen to you. Right. And um, uh, you point out in the book that another it's reported another governor told, governor told him after that, no one can accuse you of being diplomatic, Harold Hughes. Uh, well, yeah, diplomacy was not his big uh, suit. I want to play a little bit of later reflection by uh, Harold Hughes, his friendship with LBJ, uh, tested by Vietnam. Uh, let's listen to, um, uh, this is from the documentary, um, a wonderful documentary put out by Iowa PBS on the Governors uh, of Iowa, their series, well worth checking out. Hughes reflecting on uh, his relationship with LBJ. I believe that, first of all, that my president would never lie to me. Secondly, that when my country blew the bugle and said it's time to charge, every young man in America ought to take up the flag and charge. That was my heritage, my background. And I was again faced with one of the toughest political confrontations of my life. I found out beyond any reasonable doubt that we had been totally misled. That what we were hearing was not the truth. That we had been lied to as a people. And that a president that I loved was deliberately, apparently misleading us. Okay, and that's from the uh, PBS, Iowa PBS documentary, The Governors of Iowa. Jerry, before we go to break, um, uh, wrap that up. His his changing views on Vietnam and 
we look forward also because his time as a U.S. senator, he was very critical of Vietnam. Very critical at that that time. And the transformation was probably a little different than most educated Americans, being misled on such issues as the Tonkin Gulf incident, uh, where there were out-and-out lies about what happened and American responsibility, uh, and continually being told that things were improving in Vietnam when they were not. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, we'll take a break and be back, and uh, we have plenty more to talk about uh, with Harold Hughes, uh, 1968. uh, We'll focus on that when we come back, a tumultuous year of tragedy, unrest, political turmoil um, for the Democrats, the Democratic Convention. We want to talk about Harold Hughes' uh, role in that, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., also the assassination of Bobby Kennedy when he was candidate for president. So much to talk about. My guest today, Jerry Harrington, author of Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes. I'm Ben Kiefer, back with more in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Jerry Harrington, my guest, author of Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes. Uh, explores the life of this uh, amazing man, a leader in Iowa, both a governor and a U.S. senator uh, from Iowa. Let's focus on 1968, um, uh, Jerry. Uh, with all that happened in that year, uh, you've actually taught a course focusing on 1968. So I much did. to talk about there, but we're seeing it through the eyes of more or less through Harold Hughes here. Uh, let, set the scene for 1968 and, and all that happened here. We have, uh, the, assassin, we have the civil rights movement uh, taking place. We have the death early in the spring of 1968 of Martin Luther King Jr., don't we? Yes, we did. And it's an interesting story about Harold Hughes. He was talking with a group of black ministers uh, on that night in early April when a reporter called him Uh, a way to get a quote from him, and the reporter told him that Martin Luther King had been assassinated and killed. And Hughes uh, went back to the ministers. He was meeting with them to bring about some uh, reconciliation in in terms of of civil rights actions and explained it to them. And one of the first things that happened after they got the news, one minister recommended that they pray for the person who killed uh, Dr. King, which was a, quite a moving moment. Um, and uh, and that's, that's in the book and, and, and in Hughes's memoirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, later that year in June of 1968, of course, Bobby Kennedy, uh, the younger brother of uh, John Kennedy, of course, assassinated earlier in the 60s, uh, riding high, looking like the Democratic candidate for president, right? Well, it's a possibility. It was a possibility. Um, as it happened, Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, 
may have had the nomination wrapped up by the time Kennedy won the California primary. But who knows what could have happened afterwards. He was a significant candidate. Harold Hughes had expected to endorse Kennedy uh, after the California primary and uh, be on his side. He was a strong Kennedy man. It was Bobby Kennedy who persuaded Harold Hughes to run for the United States Senate in 1968. Uh, a very a tragic moment, and uh, Hughes attended Bobby Kennedy's funeral and uh, was greatly impacted by his assassination. Here's a clip from the Governors of Iowa series on Iowa PBS. Um, after uh, Robert Kennedy struck down uh, after that California Democratic primary by an assassin's bullet, the next morning in Iowa, his old friend, Harold Hughes uh, would address reporters. In honor Senator Kennedy's memory is to rededicate ourselves to the goals of equality, justice, and human dignity for which he stood. Look what happened to us. Jack Kennedy was killed, Bob Kennedy was killed, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. All of these great tragedies were taking place. When I think of these men and what might have happened had they had a chance to live out their life, you know, and to move on. If the gun wasn't the final instrument of political decision, you know, where if you don't have anything else to offer, shoot them down. I, you can't kill ideas and you can't kill human rights. You know, and that's what we were dealing with. Shooting the man didn't remove the mission. You know, it will immortalize the individuals, but it, it won't stop the mission. It's going to go on for all of time. No one can stop that. Quite a year, 1968. It was. And also in 1968, there was the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. which exposed the optimism that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. There certainly wasn't, and there would be years and years of fighting in Vietnam. Tell us more about um, Harold Hughes' relationship with then-Senator Robert Kennedy before his death, because it played a decisive role in persuading Hughes to run for Senate in 68, which he won. He was going to get out of politics. He was. He was. He was going to get out of politics, uh, certainly not run for governor again, um, and uh, there was rumors going around that he was going into private business. And then one day in 1967, he got a call from Bobby Kennedy, who was then a uh, junior senator from New York. And Kennedy, in his own direct manner, said, I think you should run for the Senate, Governor. And what Kennedy had anticipated at that time was that Lyndon Johnson would run for reelection and get reelected. And uh, he thought that the Vietnam War wouldn't change with Johnson in the White House, but they had to put pressure on the White House, and the place to do it would be be the United States Senate. And if Hughes ran and won, there would be another vote in the Senate to take that battle uh, to the White House. So uh, Kennedy was quite persuasive. Hughes went to New York to talk to Kennedy, and uh, Kennedy promised that he'd come to Iowa to help fundraising. And also he gave him a promise that if Hughes was elected to the Senate, that his brother Ted Kennedy, who was on a uh, significant committee which generated uh, social welfare programs, that Hughes would be able to initiate a program to help alcoholics. Mm. And that was one of the uh, 
uh, one of the bargains that they reached at that time. And later that became the Hughes Act of yes. 1970. We'll yes. talk about that a little bit later. But tell us more about the 1968 Senate race. We want to talk about that that amazing convention in Chicago in 68. But um, uh, Harold Hughes won his bid to become U.S. Senator in 68 over a Republican, David Stanley, won by one of the narrowest margins in Iowa history. What were the, the main issues and how... Did Hughes eke out that win? Hughes pretty much uh, by that time was a prominent anti-war candidate, and it was defined by two things. One, his support of Eugene McCarthy for president, who was the senator from Minnesota that had challenged LBJ and was still a viable candidate by the time of the convention. Um, And so he was defined by that support. He was also defined by the position he took on the bombing in North Vietnam. LBJ had reduced some of the bombing in his speech to the nation on March 31st, 1968, the very uh, speech in which he withdrew from uh, his campaign for the presidency. And uh, Hughes uh, took a position that LBJ should stop all of the bombing. Dave Stanley uh, wanted it continued that in parts of, of the southern part of, of North Vietnam to get technical about it. So that was really the uh, distinction between the two candidates. Hughes said stop all bombing to help the Paris peace talks reach some sort of a resolution. Stanley said continue this limited bombing uh, to help protect the troops. Uh, by the end of 68, LBJ did decide to end all bombing in anticipation of some sort of a resolution, which he did not get. But that was essentially the difference between the two candidates. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the 1968 Democratic Convention, uh, known for the police riots in Chicago. Uh, Harold Hughes gave the nominating speech for Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota at that 68 convention. We want to hear a clip from his nominating speech. Tell us first how he came to give that nominating speech. Well, he came to the conclusion that if he should support a candidate, it would be someone more in line with his views on Vietnam. Uh, McCarthy was running against Hubert Humphrey at the convention, and Hughes thought McCarthy stood a little, uh, uh, not a significant chance at the convention, but he would have zero chance if no one of prominence supported him. So shortly before the convention, he called up McCarthy and said he was going to support him. McCarthy immediately asked Hughes to give his nomination speech, knowing Hughes was a great speaker. And so he agreed. Mm -hmm. And that's how it came about. Okay, let's hear a little bit of that nominating speech from 1968, the Democratic uh, Convention held in Chicago. Uh, This is Harold Hughes. And what's interesting here, um, to sort of point out in advance, in listening to this clip, which runs nearly two minutes, how it addresses some of the very same themes and crises we have in our country today. Let's listen. We're in the midst of what can only be called a revolution in our domestic affairs and in our foreign policy as well. And as the late President Kennedy once said, those who would make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. In this time of unprecedented crisis, the nomination for the presidency is more than the selection of an able and a qualified individual for the office. We must have bold leadership 
willing to undertake the basic changes in our political system that are so necessary to its survival. We must seek a leader who can arrest the polarization in our society, the alienation of the blacks from the whites, the haves from the have-nots, and the old from the young. We must choose a man with the wisdom and the courage to change the direction of our foreign policy before it commits us for an eternity to a maze of foreign involvements without clear purpose or moral justification. But most of all, the man we nominate must embody the aspirations of all those who seek to lift mankind to its highest potential. He must have that rare, intangible quality that can lift up our hearts and cleanse the soul of this troubled country. Gene McCarthy is such a man. Of course, uh, Eugene McCarthy did not become the nominee. Uh, Humphrey did. Um, Nixon beat Humphrey in 1968. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about his um, time as U.S. Senator from Iowa. You tell an interesting story in your book, uh, Jerry Harrington. Uh, he st- steps foot into the Senate for the first time, I think you say, in 1969, not greeted warmly by a fellow Democratic senator. Tell us that story. Well, he mentioned this in his memoirs, but he didn't name the senator's name. And it was uh, Thomas Dodd from Connecticut, who was a relatively conservative Democrat. And uh, Hughes went up to say hi to him in friendly Iowa way. And Dodd just rejected him and and said, uh, was really uh, critical of him then. And and the reason was is is because of Hughes' support for Gene McCarthy. Uh, Dodd just couldn't stand the man. Uh, Later on that night, well, at that time, Hughes could also smell alcohol on his breath. And later on that night, Hughes got a call from Dodd's aide saying that Senator Dodd was in his office in a despondent mood on the verge of suicide. So Hughes got up out of his bed in the middle of the night and went and counseled him, as he did countless other alcoholics. And uh, that uh, uh, Christopher Dodd, his son, said that that night saved his father's life. Hmm. Now, he did die several years later, a few years later, but uh, that's what Hughes often did with other alcoholics. Circle back to what we mentioned a moment ago, the Hughes Act of 1970 um, that transformed alcohol addiction to a disease rather than a moral failing. Here in the 21st century, we, we most of us think of it as a disease. It's been a long time coming to be thought of as that, but this was really instrumental. Yes. Uh, it was instrumental in setting up programs that treated it as a disease. Uh, the and this was really the start of, or it, this began to change in the mid-1960s, and, and this, the Hughes Act was the fruition of that. Mm. That is, a transformative act in terms of giving aid to alcoholics, treating it as a disease, doing research into alcoholism. Uh, and the institution within the federal bureaucracy still exists today and still giving aid to alcoholics through government grants and through research and through programs that, that address the, the severe problem. Mm-hmm. So anti-Vietnam, uh, the Hughes Act of 1970, uh, a pivotal moment for the transformation of how we view alcohol addiction. Um, what else is he known for in the Senate? Well, he eventually served on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, and that was uh, after the 1970 elections, I think, when there was a, um, 
uh, an opening. And the way the Senate Armed Services Committee was set up, there were few liberals there. Uh, John Stennis of Mississippi was the chairman. Um, Strom Thurmond of, of South Carolina, John Tower of Texas, Barry Goldwater of Arizona, conservatives all. And the, the Senate leadership, um, there were some parties that wanted a liberal put in the Senate in order to impact legislation and appropriations prior to when it hit the Senate floor. And Hughes was that man. And he, he served the last couple or last four years uh, of his Senate career uh, doing a lot of work there. Mm-hmm. He he talked about, you note in the book, um, frustrating, uh, a word that Hughes often used to describe his life as a U.S. senator. Uh, what was that frustration? The frustration was is that he used to be a governor. And as a governor, you're used to making decisions. You're used to carrying out programs. You're used to seeing something being done. You're an executive. Yes, yes. Now, some uh, governors go to the U.S. Senate and, and get along just fine. I mean— uh, before he declared for the Senate, for instance, he sent his uh, number one aide, Park Reinard, to interview Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, former governor, current U.S. senator. And Nelson said, yeah, this job's great. But after six years, uh, Hughes was not, uh, just didn't feel real comfortable being one vote among 100, where you talk about something maybe for years and really nothing gets done on it. It was quite quite frustrating for a man like Hughes who was used to being an executive. Right, and he was pulled in a different direction. And we, early in his life, he was a gift of, and he recognized, you know, his uh, uh, Christian identity uh, and his uh, ability to uh, move in those circles uh, and to persuade people spiritually. Yes. His, yeah. his ministry called him back. He did. He did. Um, at the end of his Senate term, he stunned the political world by uh, announcing that he would not be running for another term in the Senate and uh, also that he would join the Fellowship House, which was a conservative Christian organization that, that counseled, uh, among others, business people. But it, but it provided a, an arena for which uh, Hughes would feel more comfortable, that is, being a lay minister. And he felt that inner calling there. Yeah, and, and when you say stunned, what do you mean by that? A reaction around the country in Iowa? Well, one of my favorite Frank Miller cartoons is, uh, who was the cartoonist for the Des Moines Register at the time, mm-hmm. uh, after Hughes made this announcement, the, he had a picture of a, of a donkey with a deer in the headlights look on it, <laughs> and, and an elephant right next to him grinning from trunk to trunk, saying, maybe he can give you some prayers. <laughs> and the, the donkey was stunned with all these Hughes paraphernalia around him, with the last of which was the head line that Hughes is leaving politics. No one had, few people had expected this. They expected Harold Hughes to go on and be elected to a number of terms and being a national leader. But uh, Harold Hughes was a man that followed his own inner compass. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was he thought of and why was he thought of as presidential material? He was, he started to be thought of as presidential material quite early in his Senate career. And it, and it was a reflection of his personality, of his voice, of his forcefulness, and all the things that Iowans had seen, the national media and influencers were starting to see in Harold Hughes when he was senator. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, we'll be back in just a moment with more of my conversation with Jerry Harrington, author of Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes, uh, an amazing biography that explores the life of this transformational leader, served both as governor of Iowa and U.S. senator of Iowa. It's River to River from IPR News. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. Back with this final section of my interview with Jerry Harrington, author of the new biography of Harold E. Hughes titled Thunder from the Prairie. We're zeroing in on the end of Harold Hughes' uh, political uh, uh, career here, uh, but talk about in the interview you write about in this book that he gave in 1971 and how that essentially ended any aspirations to become president. Well, um, Harold Hughes had a meeting in his office uh, with aides to discuss the presidential campaign. And the question was whether or not he should get serious and declare himself a candidate because an office had been set up in Washington, D.C., and another office had been set up in Des Moines, and they were getting quite serious about it. Uh, Hughes was feeling a little bit uncomfortable that uh, his Senate duties were sort of interfering with any sort of a presidential campaign, and everything was being looked upon in the context of him being a candidate. And in these, this discussion, he's, he talked about some of his liabilities. And uh, someone was listening to that through a heating duct and <laughs> uh, caught this conversation. Rumors started spreading around Washington about Harold Hughes and some of his unconventional religious beliefs. So the Des Moines Register heard about this. James Rizzer, who was the head of the Des Moines Register's Washington office, approached Hughes's uh, office and wanted to do an interview. And they wanted to ask about some of these things rather than have them come out in tabloid newspapers or something. So Hughes reluctantly agreed and uh, discussed his unconventional religious beliefs, which included taking part in seances and believing that he had talked with his dead brother, Jesse. Mm. Hughes declared himself to be a spiritualist, believing that God talks directly to him, that uh, miracles happen in modern day. And uh, the, uh, the register took some of these uh, statements and ran it in the Sunday morning Des Moines Register. Uh, it was, and Hughes could not deny it because it, it, he'd been public about some of them before. Uh, but this was quite a revelation to some people. Within three days, Hughes held a press conference announcing the end of any presidential campaign. Mm. So the reaction there nationwide, it took him off the, the radar for a president. Yeah, it did. I, I don't know that it would have affected a lot of people in Iowa uh, because they knew Hughes, but here he was being introduced to a national audience in a presidential campaign, and that that would have been quite a liability. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to Harold Hughes' disillusionment with the Vietnam War. Uh, one interesting um, story you have here is uh, took place in 1972, Uh, we have a letter arrive in Hughes' Washington office from a 23-year-old Cedar Rapids native and intelligence specialist. Tell us that story. 
Well, let me start by describing the bombing. Uh, the bombing of in North Vietnam, it started with Operation Rolling Thunder in the middle of 19, or early 1965, which led to the need for troops to protect the, the airplanes, which, which then increased ground troops in Vietnam, which led to half a million troops there by 1968. Uh, in 1968, as I stated earlier, LBJ ended the overall bombing of North Vietnam, and Richard Nixon, who was president after LBJ, continued that prohibition. However, uh, over North Vietnam were allowed reconnaissance flights, uh, flights that would uh, go over North Vietnam and uh, detect troop movements, uh, munitions, uh, armaments, etc. And these flights were accompanied by bombers. If uh, the reconnaissance flights were fired upon, these bombers were allowed to initiate bombing and, and take out these sites. By 1972, those were called the rules of engagement. And there was, as you mentioned, uh, an individual called Lonnie Franks, a 23-year-old intelligence specialist operating out of the Udorn Air Force Base in Thailand, who, when he interviewed the, uh, the bombers coming back, uh, they reported that in, in early in a mission in early January that yes they had dropped bombs, and so Franks asked, "Were you fired upon?" The answer was no, but you're to write down that we were fired upon. Mm. You're t- in effect to lie for an, as an intelligence specialist. Lonnie Franks took this to his superior. The superior said basically, "Son, obey your orders." obey the order to lie, which he did several times, which took a lot of time to make the wrong stuff right, as he said. So he felt um, that someone should know about this. So he wrote his senator, uh, Harold Hughes, who was serving on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and things started happening fast. Uh, The Pentagon sent out a three-star general to evaluate the policy. Um, and within a couple days, the Air Force three-star general in charge of that operation, um, John Lavelle, was uh, announced his retirement. Hmm. And Hughes continued to look into this to find out who had actually given the orders to initiate these, in effect, bombing missions. And uh, uh, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't get to the bottom of it throughout the rest of his Senate career. Mm-hmm. The Years later, what we found out is that these orders came directly from the White House, from Richard Nixon himself, and that was uncovered in the Nixon tapes. Mm -hmm. Jerry Harrington, author of Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes. With just a few minutes left, I'd like to ask you to uh, read a bit from the epilogue of your book here. It really ties things together, this magnificent biography that you've created over the course of seven years, I think you mentioned. It. Yeah, it was a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read a little bit. Share from the epilogue. Okay. James Flansburg, the cynical, hard-bitten political reporter and columnist for the Des Moines Register, covered generations of Iowa politicians. He wrote of Harold Hughes at his death in 1996, quote, He was the purest of his kind. His flaws even had a kind of majesty and he never tried to fool himself or pretend to be something he wasn't, end quote. Comparing Hughes to contemporary politicians, Flansburg continued, that simple lack of guile is so foreign to politics today that I wonder if those who didn't know and watch Hughes figure I'm speaking in tongues. With an honesty and directness rare among politicians of his era, Hughes made a difference, particularly in his state, but in the nation as well. 
His accomplishments were many, and the actions he took reverberate to this day. In Iowa, Hughes altered the political and governmental landscape through his leadership and personality. It was in the realm of state government reform that Hughes left his strongest legacy, tackling challenges that had been untouched for decades. Quote, in Iowa, end quote, Flansburg wrote, quote, virtually every aspect of government was modernized or set in motion for modernization by Hughes, end quote. Hughes's efforts on the national stage were not as impactful, but they were significant. There's no better example than his work to create and fund the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Tackling the issue like a tenacious bulldog, Hughes succeeded where others had failed. Like many other Americans, Hughes turned against the Vietnam War, believing it flouted American ideals. Unlike many others, however, Hughes articulated his opposition in a clear and impassioned manner that stirred others. Leadership aside, Hughes's story is one of individual inspiration. He successfully fought the demon of alcoholism and used his experience to counsel others and help them overcome this potentially life-threatening disease. In addition to relying on personal willpower and help from friends, he relied on his Christian faith. This personal Christian outlook, modified over the years, resulted from an intense, lifelong journey into the deep river of his soul. Unlike others whose Christianity led them to political conservatism, Hughes's theology guided him to the left of center. This unique trait, together with his ability to change his mind after serious reflection, makes him an individual worth exploring. Jerry Harrington reading from the epilogue of Thunder from the Prairie, his biography of Harold E. Hughes. In the final moments here, a few quick questions for you, Jerry. What is the relevance of Harold Hughes' life, his beliefs, his politics for our world today? I think it, in addition to the impact and changes he made in government, uh, it, it's the inspiration of what a leader can do. Uh, I think, you know, with a moral center, and that's one of the reasons I wrote that book, that it, uh, he did reflect what I think we commonly call Christian beliefs and, and did it uh, as a liberal. And I wanted to cite that as an example, but uh, the impact he's had on laws, uh, we have a, a reformed state, we have a significant national program against alcoholism, but mostly it's the example of his life. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could sit down for dinner with Harold Hughes today, this sort of mental exercise. Uh, what would you most like to talk about with him? I think I would like to talk about reconciliation between parties, because uh, mm. Hughes was good at that. Mm. Uh, he was a, a Democrat who got a lot of Republican votes in Iowa. Um, you look at certainly 1964. I mean, those Republicans didn't vanish, but he, he won overwhelmingly a re-election as governor. Um, in, in Washington, he was able to converse with conservatives. Uh, he served on the Senate Armed Services Committee, but most importantly, he served or he, uh, he went to the prayer breakfasts, uh, that they had every Wednesday in the Senate and, and broke bread and prayed with some pretty right wingers, or, or as he said, his aides called them the modern Neanderthals. Uh, but but here was a man who could reach across party lines and do it quite effectively. Mm-hmm. How do you think um, he would fare in today's political climate if if he could pop up 
reincarnated as Harold Hughes? I think he'd do quite well. <laughs> I believe he would. Yeah. I mean, straight talk is very yeah. popular, isn't it? Well, and that's what he did. He yeah. was had candor. He, he was he, genuine. He did. He had candor, and and he had a a directness that few have. And and I think he'd find quite an audience today. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about what it took to to research this book over the course of seven years and to write it. What did you find? Uh, as someone who's written a lot about Iowa history, what what were the particular challenges you faced here? Uh, some of the challenges were uh, doing things in the wrong order. There are three main elements here. They're the, going through the newspapers, going through the archives, and interviewing people who, who knew Hughes. And I had to start with the, the interviewing people who knew Hughes before I got a lot of background because none of them were young. And uh, which was a great joy at the part of, of this book. But uh, so I, I've interviewed about 26 people uh, in, totally in the book. And um, um, what I started out with, it was was newspapers and going through the Des Moines Register, the Cedar Rapids Gazette every day between 1962 and 1974. And then the great joy of going through the uh, the archives at the University of Iowa and special collections. Um, I. Uh, that's where you find out some of the stories behind the stories. Mm-hmm. And tell me a little bit more about the twenty-some people who knew Harold Hughes that you interviewed. What were the highlights? Some of the highlights there. Well, I talked with two former U.S. senators, Tom Harkin and Dick Clark. I talked with two Pulitzer Prize-winning reporters, James Rizzer and Nick Kotz, both of the Des Moines Register. But the, to me, the most interesting interview was with Lonnie Franks who was this 23, he's now in his 60s living in Dayton, Ohio. And I just really admired the man for, as a kid, standing up for honesty and decency and refusing to cave in to a system that forced him to lie. And it was the great joy in talking with him, together with Hughes's aides, uh, Dwight Jensen, who lives in Iowa City, uh, who was his uh, number one aide during his time as governor, uh, Bill Headland, who was also also worked on his staff. I talked with two uh, former candidates for governor, Bonnie Campbell, Roxanne Conlon, and uh, it was it was just a great joy. The greatest joy was probably talking with Hughes's daughter, uh, yeah. Phyllis Hughes Ewing, who lives in Des Moines, and uh, she was uh, very helpful in uh, in a lot of the background I had on Hughes. You did not meet Harold Hughes. Um, no, or, I or did. You I, did. I, I did once. I was a student at Cornell College, and he came by in 1974 to uh, <laughs> to campaign for then Michael Bluen, and uh, I remember getting to this session real early. It was a, a room in the in the back of the Cornell com, uh, Commons, and uh, his aide set Hughes in the middle of the room, and there were only a few of us there, and he kind of looked around, where is everybody? And I tried to make light talk with him, but he's, he's not really good at small talk. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So he did, and then the room started filling up, but that was my one interaction with Hughes. And at what point was he in his political career? He was at the end of his Senate term, yeah, he 74. W- w- uh-huh. And he was going around helping candidates and campaigning for them. I wonder, when you spoke with a couple dozen people who, who knew him personally, uh, what struck you about how he came across in person, his public persona versus his private persona? Was there much of a difference there? What did you reveal there? I asked that question once of Sherwin Markman, 
who knew him as governor and then knew him as uh, as senator and was a person who worked in the Johnson White House. And he told me there was no difference between Hughes out in public and Hughes behind closed doors. As Markman told me, there was no falsicity in this man. He, he never really hid much. Uh, I think he was the same guy among his staff uh, behind closed doors as he was out in public. In this seven-year uh, work to produce this biography of Harold E. Hughes, um, you know, if you had a, a certain perspective, certainly of the man when you start out, started and you set off on this and then you ended with a, I imagine, a different perspective. Were there big surprises or did that change much? Not really. I, I generally knew his career because I'm an Iowa native. I lived through it. Not too many surprises that I can really tell you. Um, I, I learned details. And I think what the details did, they confirmed what, what uh, the 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 man that I knew is Harold Hughes. Yeah, and I think you write in the book that the year 1968 was the first time you recall paying attention to national news coverage. Yeah. You were 13 years old, I think. Yeah, that was a heck of a year. Yeah, and <laughs> and was Harold Hughes part of that consciousness? He was, and I remember seeing him really in my memory for the first time at the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968. And uh, for some reason, I, I remember 68 as being a year that I started paying attention to news, and there was a lot of news. I mean, I mean, I can tell you something that happened every month that was tumultuous. Um, and, um, I, and I share with Bonnie Campbell that, that seeing Hughes for the first time in 1968 giving that speech for McCarthy. Yeah. And I, I was quite proud of being an Iowa native, and there was my governor making that speech. Yeah, that's what I wanted to bring up. As an yeah. Iowan on a national stage, you right. must, must have been very proud. Yeah, and that was the most—Hughes was the most prominent Iowan— at a Democratic convention, certainly since the days of Henry Wallace in the 1940s. This is a remarkable work uh, that you've put out here, Jerry Harrington, Thunder from the Prairie, The Life of Harold E. Hughes. Jerry, thanks for this longer conversation, well worth it, and all the work that went into this. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Oh, well, thank you for having me here. Today's River to River, produced by Danny Gear and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.